Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a dramatic alternative theory for why the pyramids were built. Egyptologists have a story that they tell people, and they also tell, you know, the next generation that same story, but it's not accompanied with any type of demonstrations. This podcast is brought to you by Canada's decontamination specialists, Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners is committed to helping people when tragedy strikes. Their objective is to restore safety to an environment in the most professional and discreet manner possible. To contact Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners, visit crimescenecleaners.ca. Call 1-866-724-0800, 1-866-724-0800, or email them at info at crimescenecleaners.ca. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Author, lecturer, and independent researcher Stephen Myers is standing by to discuss his amazing theory about the real purpose of the Egyptian pyramids. This afternoon, I'm off to Greece, so episodes of Conspiracy Unlimited will be coming to you from my studio overlooking the Mycenaean Bay. That's starting Wednesday. And again, just bear in mind, it's not quite as soundproof as my studio beneath the stairs. Not soundproof at all, actually. So you are likely to hear dogs and roosters and the occasional goat and, of course, cicadas. Uh, Stephen Myers has studied the Great Pyramid for over 20 years to understand how this ancient wonder of the world was built and why. His research included traveling to Egypt to conduct extensive on-site research at the Giza Plateau. Stephen has written numerous magazine articles and given many lectures on the subject of the Great Pyramid, compiling his research into two books, The Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid and The Great Pyramid Prosperity Machine. Stephen Myers, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me on your show. First, before we get into the, the details of why the pyramids were built and how, just tell us a little bit about the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation. Well, it's a nonprofit foundation, the Pharaoh's Pump Foundation, and uh, it is about understanding how and why the Great Pyramid was built. And uh, we have done a lot of research. We are a 501c3 nonprofit foundation with uh, pro bono legal counsel. We have a uh, extensive library, taken a research expedition to Egypt, and done a whole host of other things. We have a facility to conduct research about uh, the Great Pyramid and so much more. We have a website at thepump.org and uh, people can find out our mission statement and what we're about and our activities at that website. So the the theory here is that the, the Great Pyramids at Giza were constructed as water pumps and we'll get into that in more detail. But first off, 
when I think of the pyramids, and most people think of the pyramids, we imagine, I've never been, but we see in our mind, we've seen on videos and countless documentaries, they're surrounded by desert, basically. <laughs> they're surrounded by sand. I don't think of water having much to do with the pyramids. So take us back to their construction. I mean, were they at that time surrounded by water? Yes. Herodotus, uh, in at least one translation of his book, the 5th century BC historian, described the Great Pyramid as being like an island surrounded by water. There used to be a wall around the Great Pyramid that impounded, we fail, uh, water. And many researchers contend that uh, there's a profound link between water and the Great Pyramid. That includes uh, Christopher Dunn, who also contends that water was made available uh, to the Great Pyramid by the original builders and uh, was used, uh, was, there was a great you know, relationship between water and the Great Pyramid. Uh, Sir Philanders Petrie, uh, an early Egyptologist, found Nile earth inside the Great Pyramid sediment, if you will. And uh, certainly there's uh, a whole host of evidences that indicates uh, water played a part in the Great Pyramid, including the, the casing stones on the outside of the Great Pyramid are cemented together watertight, and those that remain are still uh, watertight in their joints. So yes, there's a lot of uh, research being conducted about water and uh, the Giza Plateau. People can word search the Great Pyramid and Harbor. There's recently a harbor located right near the building site. So yes, certainly it's uh, a lot of sand in that area right now, but water played a big role in the construction and purpose of the Great Pyramid. All right, so let's talk about how they were constructed. And again, the sort of the official narrative or what we can call Mick history, as a friend has described it, according to Mick history, it was slave labor that was uh, used to build the pyramids and they used ramps and they used pulleys and a whole lot of elbow grease to say the least. That's how the pyramids were, were built. That's how they managed to, to move those enormous stones into place. What say you? Well, that's certainly that's the story that the Egyptologists tell about sweaty backed uh, workers that are slaves and also have very strong back muscles to drag stones up a ramp that was larger than the Great Pyramid itself and all of that. It's interesting that Egyptologists have never moved a uh, stone or a payload the size of just even a casing stone, about 16 tons. The entire science of Egyptology has never moved a stone uh, of that weight one inch even though they say that the slaves and peasants were able to do it all day long. So uh, Egyptology is a science that seems to abhor the scientific method. <laughs> they also say that uh, the precision stone cutting was accomplished using hand tools, bronze chisels and people pounding on rocks and stuff. And everyone that I know past the eighth grade knows that that's incorrect. It can't be done, the precision stone working. So Egyptologists have a story that they tell people. And they also tell, you know, the next generation that same story, but it's not accompanied with any type of demonstrations. I think the Great Pyramid was built by geniuses who actually knew what they were doing and, and really did move heavy stones. They weren't Egyptologists. If Egyptologists were uh, responsible for building a Great Pyramid, it would never be completed. But uh, they used water and water locks and canals and barges to move the stones from the Nile all the way up to the building site. 
And uh, all researchers agree that uh, they use barges because many of the quarries, some of are 400 miles upstream. So everyone acknowledges that they used barges, even some of the quarries are across the river. But uh, we think that uh, the geniuses who built the Great Pyramid were able to move those stones all the way up from the Nile to the building site. The first stone set place was the first layer of casing stones that I mentioned. So it made a square wall, if you will, and those stones were bonded together watertight. So they were able to fill that pond, that, that wall, a square wall with water. So it was like a pond up on the Giza Plateau, about five feet deep. And stones on barges went from the Nile all the way up and in fact into that pond. So they were able to move stones effortlessly, if you will, and uh, they moved the stones from the barges into the pond, the interior stones, and when that uh, pond was filled with stones, the first level of the Great Pyramid was completed, and uh, then they would start the next level. They would put the casing stones first, and then the interior stones, level by level. We have a video series on our website at thepump.org that describes in detail how all of the stones were moved and set in place, how they were moved on and off of barges and assembled to create the Great Pyramid. That includes the largest stones that weigh 70 tons, as well as even the capstone. So I invite people to watch our video series and uh, get an idea of the uh, construction process used to build the Great Pyramid. So the, the, the water in the pond, did so as the, the pyramid got taller and they had to move these big, heavy stones up higher and higher, were they able then to raise the water in, a, in the pond that was walled off almost like a lock? Yes, in a way they did. We think that the subterranean cuttings below the Great Pyramid, the subterranean chamber, and associated passages acted like a water pump, and that kept that pond that rose level by level, it kept that pond full and allowed the water locks to operate. And it was an efficient system. We think the water locks were incorporated into the casing stones, if you will, and uh, they uh, were used to move these stones on barges uh, quickly and effortlessly up the uh, series of water locks into that pond, and they built it level by level from the bottom up. Herodotus said that he was told that they built the Great Pyramid from the bottom up, but then finished it from the top down. So we think what that kind of means, if you will, is that after the Great Pyramid was assembled, they removed the water locks from the top down, and uh, the video series describes that as well. So. Yeah, it's an efficient uh, method to uh, move uh, our heaviest objects in the 21st century. And we think that the people that built the Great Pyramid also used these uh, water locks to assemble the Great Pyramid. I'm just trying to imagine how big a barge you would need uh, to hold a 70-ton stone. Any idea? Yes, I do know. Uh, The Erie Canal... The uh, when originally built was four and a half feet deep, 
And the water locks were 90 by 15 feet, I think, from memory. The barges would uh, hold 70-ton payloads. So in the 1830s, when uh, the Erie Canal here in the United States was built, people that worked on the Erie Canal moved 70-ton payloads all day long. But now, in the 21st century, Egyptologists can't move 70-ton payloads. <laughs> uh, how convenient, though, <laughs> that the Welland Canal, or the Erie Canal, rather, that exact same payload. Um, now, is there evidence, uh, archaeological evidence, for these, these locks that you speak of? None. There's no evidence for the water locks. We think that they were incorporated into the casing stones, and uh, the casing stones have been removed. So the Great Pyramid is a puzzle with a number of pieces missing. You know, there's no there's no uh, pharaoh's carcass in the Great Pyramid. You know, there's no treasure, and certainly uh, there's a lot of other things that don't exist. Uh, you know, there's no uh, reference to Orion or anything like that. So all we have, all all researchers have, is the same direct physical evidence to make their assessment of how how it was assembled and why people in ancient times would go to such a monumental effort to build such a structure. And we think that it was built using water locks and it was a machine that provided prosperity for the civilization that built it. If it's a machine, describe the the main components uh, in the interior, what it would have looked like inside the pyramid if it's a pump. Well, first of all, it didn't look like a tomb. In the uh, Valley of the Kings, there's a bunch of tombs. That's, uh, you know, everyone acknowledges that they're tombs because mummies are in there, and every surface has writing all over it. But the Great Pyramid doesn't have writing inside of it because it's a machine. Just like the cylinders of your car engine don't have writing in there. doesn't need it because it's a machine. But we think that the Great Pyramid provided prosperity or a return on investment by being a large water pump. And they pumped water uh, through the passages and chambers. The water entered the upper end of the descending passage. Even Christopher Dunn contends that is certainly uh, in the realm of possibility. But we think that the water entered the upper end of the descending passage, went down into the subterranean chamber, and that chamber used the property of implosion that Victor Schrauberger, I don't know if you've heard of him, he was an Austrian researcher. Uh, Victor Schrauberger talked about implosion and uh, properties of water that aren't really fully understood, even in modern times. But but it caused water to be uh, moved up into the lower end of the Grand Gallery. And my book, my second book, The Great Pyramid Prosperity Machine, talks about how the, the Great Pyramid operated at a, as a pump. But anyway, water was available at the bottom end of the Grand Gallery. Well, they used electrolysis in that chamber. Other researchers contend that electrolysis was used inside the Great Pyramid. Other people who contend it was in a functioning machine. i got to stop you there, because <laughs> electrolysis, <laughs> this is ancient Egypt. My understanding of electrolysis is, well, is you need an uh, you run you running you're running an electrical current into a steel plate uh, and and separating oxygen from hydrogen. That's what I think of when I think of electrolysis. Yes, what? that's what that's what we think happened. Really? How? We do. 
Oh, well, there's a, there's a lot to it. Let me put it that way. Just like a four-cylinder V8 or a four-cylinder four-cycle engine has a lot going on at the same time. But there are slots, if you will, in the bottom of the in the floor of the Grand Gallery that held something. Various researchers contend they held various things. We think that they held electrolysis plates in that chamber. And the purpose of having electrolysis was they uh, ultimately ignited the, the oxygen and hydrogen gases. And uh, those are quite volatile. And the result of that was they made a powerful vacuum in the Grand Gallery. The Grand Gallery wasn't already inside a wonder of the world. It would be a wonder of the world. It also is made where you can't stick a needle between the stones in the joints. It's that precisionally made, and, and there is a bonding agent between the stones. And that's not to keep the pharaoh's soul from leaking out or anything. <laughs> no. That, no. you know, that had a functional purpose, and it wasn't for symbolism or anything like that. So anyway, that was an airtight chamber, the Grand Gallery. And uh, that vacuum drew water up into the Grand Gallery. It's about, uh, you know, it's a long chamber that's at an angle, 26 degrees. They would release that vacuum, and that would cause this massive piston of water, maybe 100 tons of water, that would move ultimately into the Queen's Chamber and then up into the King's Chamber, and the the uh, water would exit the King's Chamber vents. That's a very abbreviated explanation of the uh, Great Pyramid water pump, but my two books and two documentaries that would describe the process in much greater detail, so <laughs> right, bear right. with me. Absolutely, and it's, yeah, it's difficult, to, obviously, to to sort of paint this picture on when we're just dealing with audio here, but again, people can go to the website, and that's thepump.org, and they can see those videos, a video series there. But if they had working knowledge of electricity, would they have needed a pump? Yes. If you have working knowledge of electricity, you need a pump. That's for darn sure. The largest structure in the Valley of the Nile is pumping water right now. Isn't that interesting? So modern people, they know about electricity, yet they, the large structure is a huge uh, water pumping system. That's the Aswan High Dam. Ah, right, right. Right. It operates differently than the Great Pyramid water pump, but it fulfills the same purpose. You know, it irrigates land year-round. It certainly supplies electricity for other purposes, but it is used to pump water, and uh, it provides prosperity for the people that built it. And in modern times, they built a big structure in the Valley of the Nile that provides prosperity. I think the geniuses in ancient times built a big structure in the Valley of the Nile that provided prosperity for them. And so if it's a pump, what is it? Is it? It's not producing electricity, or is it? What, what, what was this pump producing? What kind of work was it doing? Excellent question. What, what it was doing was uh, pumping water. It, it essentially raised water to the point of the upper ends of the king's chamber vents. So you had a really high head of water, if you will. Water was used just like the Industrial Revolution started with water power. And uh, in England and the in the Atlantic Northeast, uh, they had uh, some waterfalls, and uh, that they used that water power to for a whole host of purposes. Right. And I we know. think that in ancient in, in ancient times, uh, besides irrigation, which is the most obvious, 
Uh, they probably use the water to create compressed air for industrial and scientific purposes. And with compressed air, you can make high-voltage static electricity. Also, you can use compressed air in a, in a vortex tube to make extremely hot temperatures and cold temperatures. So, uh, and then a whole host of other things. Um, they could use powered heavy machinery or generated electricity with the pumped water uh, and use that electricity for scientific or medical purposes or for electroplating like some of the artifacts are in, in ancient Egypt. So there's a whole host of purposes. You know, uh, I power my laptop with water power. So, do tell. Uh, do tell. You know, yes. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I'll say. Way down, way, way up Columbia River, they got a dam, and it has water going through oh, the pipe, I, okay. and it turns the shaft. There you go. <laughs> sure. It's no, exciting. We have, yes, we have Niagara Falls. I'm sorry. I was thinking, you know, yeah, maybe you had a little, I thought you had maybe a little pump in your backyard, and you were producing electricity. But point taken, obviously, yes, we're using point hydro, taken, yes. hydroelectricity. Hydroelectricity. It's just a matter of scale. Yeah. So people in the 1930s, they wanted their their kids to have food in their belly every day. So uh, they built these hydroelectric dams along the Columbia River. I'm on, out here on the West Coast. And all these dams, the Columbia River is now a stepped lake, if you will. There's a whole series of dams, including the Grand Coulee Dam. But, uh, uh, you know, it's prosperity. Sure. The Grand Coulee Dam is a, is a big cement thing. It makes enough electricity for six cities the size of uh, Seattle. So the so, uh, uh, the pumps were the pumps it's amazing. Were the pumps uh, in these pyramids? Did they have turbines? Were they? Uh, they did not. No. It, it's specific to the Great Pyramid, but but it still pumped water. Not it didn't have turbines shafts. It had a system that is uh, much different than that type of thing to pump water. They used vacuum, electrolysis, and that type of thing instead of shafts and turbines and all of that. So it's a different it's a different method. And what we're trying to do at our nonprofit foundation is redevelop this ancient but high technology for our modern but very troubled world. What do you aim to do? I mean, as you point out, we, we have hydroelectricity we're producing electricity through with water what what else do we need i mean if we if we can i mean up here in canada we have so much <laughs> untapped hydroelectric power that's just not being utilized here in the united states we have water that goes through these rivers and all these dams but we also have california that doesn't have enough water so the californians don't like seeing fresh water go into the ocean so the next battle in the world is going to be over water. You know, it's not about oil or anything else. But what we want to do is, and there's environmental impact on every type of energy generating system, be it coal, uh, nuclear, even hydroelectric, has um, a lot of adverse environmental impact. You know, the people that are into the fish and all of that would tell you. But what we want to do is decentralize the production of electricity. People won't have to have a stone pyramid in their backyard, but they can. We want to use polypropylene containers and PVC pipe and some custom fabrication to we we develop on a smaller scale anyway this different type of water pumping system. So if you can 
If you can pump water cheaply, you can use that pumped water to generate electricity. So that's that's one of the purposes that uh, this, you know, it'll be similar to a wind power. You know, you buy the wind power equipment and uh, then you get your electricity. But we want to, you know, we want to have this alternate water pumping system that people can generate electricity and it would work better than wind, we think, because it would work 24 hours a day. So decentralizing, and then you wouldn't get an electric bill every month. So that's that's our goal, is to decentralize the production of electricity. Does it have to be constructed in the shape of a pyramid, and why, if so? No, it doesn't. Well, the reason why it was is because the pyramids are, uh, the Great Pyramid, if you will, is kind of like four dams that are backed up together, if you will. And um, if you imagine a dam, like a straight gravity dam, and four of those back all back to back, and, and it was uh, the shape of the pyramid has to do with the construction process, I think. And that way it allowed them to lift 70-ton payloads, you know, 200 feet above the uh, bedrock. So that's, and then they could build all their chambers and passages and everything else in this structure, level by level. That's why it's a pyramid shape. So a person could just use custom-built plastic, if you will, pipe and polypropylene containers with some valves. And that's that's what we're working on right now. And we are trying to uh, use crowdfunding to acquire a 3D printer. We're about halfway there with the funding. So that's that information is on our website as well thepump.org. All right. And what if you don't live in close proximity to water? What what if you're in the Mojave Desert? How would this work? Okay. If you don't have like a water source, like a river or whatever, um, you could uh, just, believe it or not, recycle, recycle the water, you know, after it goes through the pumping system and then goes through the generator, you know, the turbine, if you will, that you use the pumped water for, then you could just repump that water. So there, there are some costs involved, and uh, research is ongoing, but again, we're trying to redevelop this ancient technology for, for an alternative uh, method to generate electricity. There's a lot of ancient technologies that are in use today. Uh, cesarean sections were used in ancient times, uh, aspirin, from South America is from a plant originally. Right, right. And, uh, you know, so there's a, so, so this is just one example of, of an ancient technology that we want to redevelop. And uh, I, I think it'll help people. So if you're not in close proximity to a, a body of water, a river, or you could just take all of the wastewater from your house, however that's being delivered through water pipes, etc. Your gray water, your wastewater, all of that no, could be no, diverted no. to no, the no, pump. No. no, no, it would be similar to a to an automobile. It would be more of a closed system. You would have water like in a barrel. Let's just make say that way and that's the source for your pyramid pump if you will and then the pump would pump water up and then ultimately it could go down through the turbine and then back to the source and then you would just reuse that water believe it or not that's the uh, focus of our research you wouldn't have to be by a river you know you could have a uh, reservoir or whatever oh I that see type of thing. Uh, you know, now like I understand pond, right you know. And, it, yeah, and the pump is going to just use that same water source over and over and over again. 
over and over. Yes, it would. It I would mean, pump water and then pump the water. You know, you generate electricity. Ah, now I understand. More of my conversation with Stephen Myers when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. GetTheTea.com was built on their unique blends of organic, non-GMO, caffeine-free herbal teas. They can help keep your liver, kidneys, and colon healthy. But I want to take a moment to tell you something else I found on GetTheTea.com. It's a dietary supplement, an immune support formula made from a family of mushrooms called cordyceps. Cordyceps have been used in China for thousands of years as a tonic food and herbal medicine. Eighth element, made from cordyceps, stimulates the immune system and can help balance blood sugar levels and increase physical stamina and endurance. Eighth element is the most potent cordyceps product available, 400% more potent than other manufacturers' blends and it's been shown in clinical trials to increase stamina by more than 30%. That's why it's so popular with athletes. But Eighth Element is also great for the elderly and people suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome. I take two capsules a day with a meal and it gives me the energy to get through the day. Try Eighth Element Immune Support Formula made from cordyceps. Only available at GetTheTea.com. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Stephen Myers is here, author of The Lost Technologies of the Great Pyramid. Getting back to the Egyptians, any well, idea how much electricity they had? Did these pumps produce enough electricity to provide lighting and and uh, all of this sort of thing for the people that lived in in and around the Giza plateau well the uh, all of the uses for the pumped water is under scholarly debate but there are some hieroglyphs that looks like uh, looks like a light bulb if you will you know some people say it's like a lotus flower other people say it's like a light bulb I'm sure you're familiar with it, and it has what looks like wires that go to a box, but a lot of people think that the uh, ancient Egyptians had some sort of a lighting method, not not mirrors down into the tombs or anything, but a, an actual lighting method. Certainly, there's Baghdad batteries from that era, mm-hmm. that the little clay pot that produces a volt and a half of electricity with of iron like a big nail and then a tube of copper and uh, grape juice, if you will, for an electrolyte. But anyway, uh, yeah, they uh, I believe that they used electricity for electroplating and probably medical purposes and other, other reasons. But uh, And then the Great Pyramid, of course, powered heavy machinery. There are some large excavations around the Great Pyramid that probably housed some type of large-scale machinery. There are boat pits that are uh, right around the Great Pyramid. Some contend they held big saw blades, if you will. So there's 
certainly a lot of research that needs to be conducted, but it, a lot of it points more towards the Great Pyramid being a functioning machine more so than just a place to uh, bury a king's body. I can't imagine this is going over well with the Orthodox Egyptologists. No, they, they don't like it. The, mainly, though, there's just a wall of science, oh, excuse me, a wall of silence from Egyptology. They won't even say that the, the ideas are wrong, but uh, ideas change. You know, a hundred years ago, people said that the Great Pyramid was, uh, as a, it was built to confirm Bible prophecy, and they had to came up with a bunch of correlations and everything between the Bible and the Great Pyramid. Most people don't, don't accept that, and a similar fate will happen to Egyptology with their stories about the big ramp that can't be demonstrated and the, the, you know, all of this other stuff that, that uh, they say working people could do, but the experts, Egyptologists, can't do. All of those ideas are going by the wayside. Egyptology is a science in crisis. So uh, then there's, there's researchers coming to the fore that think that the Great Pyramid served a purpose, that it had a return on investment, that it was a functioning machine that the people that built it were geniuses, and that's the camp that I'm in. And what happened uh, to to Egypt? I mean, if it had that kind of uh, technology, uh, one would think that uh, they would have been able to, you know, defeat the Romans, and and uh, they would have continued to, to grow and prosper and increase their, their technology and power uh, that they should have, uh, you know, become one of the the great empires. What happened? Well, they were a great empire, and uh, but they, uh, uh, they ceased to exist. Just like all countries uh, rise to power and uh, ultimately are pretty much their own uh, cause of destruction. That's that's not not that hasn't hasn't to do with technology. That that has to do with the human condition. You know the. Uh, countries become corrupt or they become complacent or uh, there's chaos. You know, the United States is a good example for that. Even though we have uh, high technology, that doesn't mean that we're going to, we're going to just keep more and more, you know, it's, it just can't, it just, it's unsustainable, if you will. And other countries were unsustainable. South America, many countries were, uh, you know, rose and then fell. So it happens with uh, the best of them, regardless, regardless of their uh, technological prowess. They still, uh, you know, that's the human condition. That has nothing to do with technology. So we have pyramids not only in Egypt. We have pyramids in Central uh, America. We have pyramids supposedly in Serbia. Uh, were they all? Do you imagine built? Uh, for the same purpose? No. Um, certainly, they, uh, pyramids around the world have uh, different degrees of precision. They certainly have different design uh, features. Their sides are uh, you know, at a different angle, if you will. The materials are different. Some of the pyramids in South America are uh, made of stone rubble instead of uh, uh, they cut stone like a lot of the Great Pyramids. So, no, and uh, there are different uh, purposes. Some have platforms. 
and stairs that lead up to the top. So they have uh, different purposes, uh, different designs, different construction methods. But uh, certainly the focus of my research is how the Great Pyramid was assembled and why why they assembled it. And how close are you to to replicating uh, this this technology and maybe constructing a, a prototype or a working model? We uh, have uh, several uh, sub-assemblies and components in, in doing ongoing research in our facility, but uh, the timeline is hard to uh, predict. That part of our research is the most funding intensive with custom fabrication materials and that type of thing. You know, it's a lot different than an Egyptologist saying, uh, workers back then had big back muscles, but then they can't move the stone. So um, we are that's what we're trying to do. We are a humanitarian organization, and we want to produce this Great Pyramid uh, technology just as ancient people produced it for a purpose. And but but let me put it let me make this long story short. Uh, we're working on it and we're making uh, progress every day. Uh, the, there's some people that we're involved with that think that if we would like patent it, it would have a, a big value. And uh, but we are humanitarian. We're going to make it open source. And uh, with that, with uh, patents, if you will, it makes it more difficult for um, like funders to get on board. You know, they'll get on board. Yeah, anyone will help us if they can get a, a thousand to one return on investment. But if they want to just help people, uh, then then the funding kind of dries up. <laughs> You're looking for some angel investors. We are. Yeah. We are kind of. Uh, some people would consider it like a, a Hail Mary investment type of thing. But I think uh, I think it was worth the effort for the original builders to create the Great Pyramid. And uh, we think that it was worth it in modern times to use that same technology, if you will. Do you have any idea uh, which pharaoh may have over, overseen the construction and, and have been responsible for this water pump? Uh, that's actually beyond the scope of our research. That's like who built the Great Pyramid. So uh, I mean, that's not uh, part part of our research. And and think about it. Um, let's say it was um, you can just just pick a name here. Let's say it's some some pharaoh or somebody named Bob. Okay, <laughs> let's just say let's just make it up. Bob built the Great Pyramid. Well, you know that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't really tell us anything because the very next question is, well, how did he do it? Or, right, right. Why did he do it? And those are the two questions I focus on. And I'll, and everyone else, I know researchers that are spending their lives, their careers on when the Great Pyramid was built. But uh, again, that's just like, who? It doesn't tell you anything, really. Let's say we found out unequivocally, no matter what, that it was 10,000 years ago that the Great Pyramid was built. Okay, let's say we know that. We determined that it was 10,000 years ago, that they started construction 10,000 years ago today. What, you know, what did that tell us? Nothing. Right. Because the next question is, well, 10,000 years ago, how did they do it? 
so so I'm more interested in how it was built and why. So that's just my well, own quote. Sure. No, it, it's a very practical a- approach. I guess I'm just curious as to, you know, how far back does this technology go? And then where did they get it from? Right. Well, some, some say that uh, it's pre-ancient uh, Egypt, if you will, because Egyptologists that know everything there is to know pretty much about Egyptology can't show us the technology to make extremely precise stone right. cutting, and they can't demonstrate it. They've never made a single casing stone like the ones of the Great Pyramid. The entire science has never done that. Or even one surface of one casing stone. So, uh, you know, they're, they don't know how to do it, and they can't show us the technology that, Egypt, that ancient Egypt had to do it. So from that information, people think that it was possibly made before ancient Egypt, maybe pre-catastrophe, if you will, uh, pre-flood, if you, if you go there, or pre-asteroid uh, strike, or right, pre, right. Uh, whatever it is. So, but so I would say it's certainly more more older than traditional Egyptologists say it is. The same as already uh, proved correct for the Sphinx, because uh, Dr. Robert Schock looked at the weathering erosion on the Sphinx, and many people contend it's much older. Than the uh, than the Egyptologists say it was, which was about four thousand five hundred years, but uh, it's probably much older than that because of water erosion on the Giza plateau, and uh, so Egyptologists said that the pyramids and the Sphinx were contemporary of one another, and that still may hold true, but it may be a whole bunch older than we think it is. So. I'm. I'm uh, I tend to to follow the older idea than believe what Egyptologists say. Uh, finally, how getting back to modern times, if if we're going to run our houses, the power to to run our houses with this technology, uh, how big a structure, roughly, and how much water would be required, let's say, to run? One typical household, let's say a two, let's say three thousand square foot house with you know appliances and computers and lighting and heating and so forth. Well, it's hard to say. Um, the footprint of the structure it might be uh, you know ten by thirty, if you will, for for a house, and it might be because we're talking. You pump water up and then use gravity to power the uh, turbine that might be 30 feet tall but we want to make a design that uh, can be rebuilt by cottage industries and and people around the world using the materials they have here in the United States we might have co-ops where they build two or three for a uh, city block if you will type of thing so we uh, we're trying to help make the world a safer and cleaner place than uh, than we have now because of the uh, bizarre energy uh, systems that we've chosen to use that are just environmental disasters and also uh, geopolitical disasters with all of the money 
going to the Middle East to buy oil to, you know, fund our enemies, if you will. So it's, uh, it would help people uh, be in control of the means of production of the energy they use. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. I remember back in the early 70s, there was uh, something called pyramid power. Uh, those, they didn't realize, or we didn't realize how, how close to the truth we were. They were talking about something else entirely, really, but uh, it is indeed pyramid power. Power from pyramids. Well, Steve, um, it's exciting, I gotta tell you. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, people can go mm-hmm. to thepump.org. There's a crowdfunding campaign there to help mm-hmm. with the research. And um, Yes, and, and there's yeah. one other thing. Yes. We have a trip planned to Egypt with a tour company, and it's called Sacred Sites Journey, and it's going to be in early November of next year. It's a little more than a year ahead of uh, a year in, in the future. So uh, we're going to be there. I'll be doing some lectures there. And if anyone wants to be part of the tour, they can go to Sacred Sites Journey and learn a whole bunch more than you can even get from just the books and uh, documentaries. Steve, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to tell you what's on tap for episode 260. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the Whistleblower Tier. And a donation of just $10 per month makes you a Truth Seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet patreon.com forward slash strange planet coming up wednesday on conspiracy unlimited we have another pyramid program for you this time the healing powers of pyramids i remember in fact i am me going to one of the prisons uh, it was a juvenile prison so they said, okay, why don't we build this pyramid in, in here and see the effects? So that's when one of the first pyramid was built in that's in South India. And they have seen amazing results. The, the inmates would go sit inside and meditate. And they, they came out much, uh, again, I say higher vibration because higher vibration is, is love, gratitude, compassion, forgiveness. All of those are high vibrations. So when you are coming out with more of that in your heart, your your vibration has raised. So they would come out and actually teach meditation, which was impressive, like that's amazing. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.